time is 5.55, and the board meeting is beginning. Bridget, can you take roll, please? Yes. Loretta Mellon? Present. Witcher Harvey Jr.? Present. Lucia Angel Nahi Banger, B. Franks Walker, and Eric Murphy will not join us tonight. Mark Smith? Here. Derek Turner? Ali Yassin? Present. Okay, um, uh, we are ready for the board chair report. Okay, there is not a report this session. So um, I guess we can move on to our medical director report and come back to B when Derek signs on. So Damon, you want to take that over? Sure. Uh, just a couple quick items, and then I'll, I'll uh, move to the memo that you all received in the packets. Um, so uh, before we get to the memo, I just we, I think we've been doing kind of our pandemic review. Um, we're at um, kind of a, a, a lull for both the um, MPOX and coronavirus pandemics at this point in time. So um, I think this past week we have the fewest reported MPOX cases in the county that we've had in a long time, um, which is good to see. Um, and there are you know, really um, not any active outbreaks or anything being managed and I'm aware of by um, our colleagues in the county. Um, similarly, for the coronavirus pandemic, um, we're also um, at a low point in terms of uh, case rates in the, in the county right now with an expectation that, you know, we'll probably have a winter surge again coming. Um, but we're, we're between that, you know, the, the um, coming down off the spring surge and before going up on the winter surge right now. So um, this is a, a quiet period of time, both countywide and, um, and, and within the, um, you know, group of people experiencing homelessness who were managing in the shelter system and, and with the street medicine outreach programs. Um, so uh, the other thing I just wanted to let you all know was that I think it's been four or five days since the homeless count report came out. Um, so I haven't had a chance to digest that completely, but I expect that um, our next board meeting will go through that in some detail. Um, the headlines we've known for a while, you know, that the number of people experiencing homelessness has gone up um, by, uh, by a couple thousand, that um, that increase is uh, concentrated among people experiencing unsheltered homelessness, so primarily people not in shelters but living on the streets and in other places not meant for human habitation. I think a lot of that is people living in cars. Um, I'm excited to dig into the report now. I think we'll have more information about the health issues that um, people documented on surveys, which will be really relevant for us in the health center, and then some more information on um, demographics. So um, that's available for you all to look at yourselves on the Everyone Home website, but um, we'll spend some time here with a, a summary that gets into some of the details um, during our next meeting. Um, so I'll pause there for any questions on those items or anything else, and then we can jump into the um, discussion of primary care um, demand and, and capacity. Actually, I, I had a couple questions, uh, Damon. I was just wondering, um, given that we're going into winter, um, does our program currently have uh, um, in place a, a, a booster program in terms of COVID-19 booster for for uh, uh, any homeless uh, patients we're now serving? And uh, would that also, and would that also, my second question, second part of the question is, uh, are we also um, providing uh, flu shots uh, this fall for for patients in our program? Yeah, so across the Homeless Health Center, um, the new boosters, which are bivalent boosters, which provide protection against newer strains as well as the original strain of coronavirus are now recommended for essentially everyone. Um, and uh, we do have the, those bivalent COVID boosters available at all the wellness centers to all our patients, including people experiencing homelessness. Um, we don't yet have them, I believe, on the mobile van, but we anticipate having them. Um, and we've just received, as of this 
last couple of weeks, um, the flu vaccine. Um, and of course, that's, that'll be available as well across all the wellness centers as well as in mobile health as it has been um, every year. And then, sorry, Mark, what was your second question again? Oh, no, no, um, that was it. Okay, great. All right, I just wanted to, uh, we included a, a memo um, in your packet this time about um, the mismatch between um, primary care capacity and demand. Um, mainly, I think this is to um, help prepare us to have future conversations about some of the solutions that we're gonna, um, we're, we're going to have to implement, I think, across our system. Um, I just, you all have had a chance to review this ahead of time, but I think I just wanted to highlight a couple elements of the assessment um, and the data in the assessment, and then a couple of the recommendations, and then let you all know about what you know what to expect will come back to us um, as a co-applicant board uh, going forward. So, Brent, if you can scroll to the first um, the first uh, chart here, I think it's on the next page or the page after. There we go. Um, so this chart shows adult and pediatrics provider full-time equivalents as of uh, about a year ago in October 2021, and then as of April 2022, which was the most recent data available at the time that um, we put this memo together. This is written by um, a, a group of us who are primary care leaders, uh, both among the medical staff and medical directors. Um, and I think this tells kind of the big picture storyline of, of what's happening where if you look at the bottom line here, overall we've gone, we had gone at that point in time from 25 and a half full-time equivalent providers down to 21.8 um, full-time equivalent providers, even though the number of patients that we were caring for in adult and pediatric primary care had gone up. Um, and so you can see across our system we're increasingly um, losing provider capacity and um, and still adding um, numbers of patients that we're responsible to care for. And this is really just leading to a lot of challenges in, in um, having enough appointments available to provide care to the needed care to all of our patients. Um, so Brent, if you go to the next page, I think there's a graph that shows some of the appointment availability data. Um, so you can see here, you know, the columns are, each column for our different wellness centers and the rows are for different types of appointments. And um, everything in red is where our appointment, appointment availability is worse than the benchmark that we have. So this is tracking when our third next available appointment is. Um, you could think about it as, you know, if, if three patients call, when's the third one gonna be able to get a visit? Um, and uh, at the time that this was done, which was in June, you can see we were more than a month out, and in some cases, you know, more than two months out for people being able to get an appointment with their provider. And this is the this is the result of this is what patients experience when we don't have enough capacity yeah. uh, among the things that patients experience when we don't have enough capacity uh, among the providers to see all the patients. There's a lot more complexities to the issue that are outlined in the memo, but that's kind of the the big, the big picture um, that we um, are starting to, to try to figure out how to address as a system. Um, so we as providers made some recommendations, which I actually won't go through in detail, but you have them there in the memo, um, that come down to trying to figure out ways to um, temporarily reduce the demand for, for visits, um, uh, to try to increase the supply um, as well in, in the short term. Um, and um, and then you know really to start looking at our care model over the long term to figure out how how we can meet the obligation to see see more patients across the system. Um, I think as you all know, you know for our people our patients experiencing homelessness, um, if it takes you know 74 days say for you know someone who's not experiencing homelessness to get into Hayward, um, you can imagine for our patients experiencing homelessness and particularly for those. You know who are um, who are literally homeless by the HUD definition. Um, the this sort of access is actually nearly insurmountable, and we, we see very few. We continue to see very few people who are literally homeless in our wellness centers. I think in yeah. in large part because um, because of these access issues. I think many of our housing insecure patients. 
patients, you know, as we've talked about multiple times, kind of overlap with the general population of people that we see in, in uh, primary care. And, um, and we are seeing, you know, at, at, in fairly high numbers in clinics. Um, so we've, um, in response to this memo, our leaders have formed a task force. Tangerine's on, who's our, um, uh, our chief of population health. We have um, our chief medical officer who's participating, our new associate chief medical officer who's participating. We've developed some subgroups. Um, Tangerine's really led us in digging into some data analysis to redefine the, the highest level measures of how we're thinking about how many patients per provider can we have, and then how does that follow on for um, trying to trying to work through these um, these uh, capacity gaps on a day to day basis when patients call and need an appointment, you know how do we use our understanding of the number of people we're supposed to have per provider in order to make sure we get people the appointments they need and then use other ways to manage that capacity in the right in the, in an intelligent way, um, and I expect that as we start to have some recommendations for policy changes and solutions to this over time, and we start to have better data to be able to present, you know, you all and our leaders internally in the system will come back and talk about this issue in, in, in more detail. Um, so we just really wanted to get it on your radar, see if you have any questions, um, see if you guys wanted to give us any direction about what kinds of issues you want to hear more about in the, in the future uh, on this topic. I mean, I have a question about um, repeat visits from the um, mobile clinic. So if we have a patient that's being seen, let's say, for wound care in the mobile clinic, um, being that he can't get into, you know, the K6 clinic, let's say, um, does he go back to the mobile clinic for continuing help, or have you found that they're going to the emergency rooms? Um, we, we don't see that many repeat patients on mobile health, but we do see some, and we do see people in lots of different contexts. We see people who've gotten appointments at the clinics, but haven't gone to those appointments. They just mm -hmm. found it more convenient or easier to remember, or they just see the van again at the site mm -hmm. they're at, so they go back to the van. So I think it's pretty complicated. There's not necessarily a really obvious pattern to that, either in the data or in my experience, you know providing care. Um, I, um, I do think that, you know, we do have data that shows that we have large numbers of people, mobile van aside, who are experiencing homelessness, who utilize our emergency rooms and our hospitals, yes. but are not seen in our outpatient settings. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's concerning. It's possible that those folks are getting care, you know, in other community clinics, because um, we don't have that data. But I think that's, I think it's pretty unlikely that the bulk of them are, and I think, you know, really, as we've talked about, as you know, as I think core to our strategic plan, I think we need to figure out better ways to help people in the outpatient setting. Um, the other thing I'll say is just we're in conversations with the county about the mobile program, and I think um, preliminarily really trying to figure out how we can um, do more primary care there rather than only doing urgent care so that mm -hmm. we can kind of Go, go with the, um, the common approach that many of our patients take, which is you're here, you're easy, let me see you. I think that's, that will be operationally you know, different and challenging for us. We'll have to be able to do more things on the van than we're able mm -hmm. to do now. It's much more um, complicated to provide continuity care than it is to provide simply urgent care on the van. And so um, I think we're going to have to look into whether that's feasible and what it will take to do it. But I think we're excited about looking into that direction more, which is consistent with, again, you know, where, where our strategic plan as a co-applicant board is pushing us, you know, be able to provide as many things as possible at the moment that people come and seek care. Right. That's excellent. I hope, I hope that happens. All right, thank you. Yeah, I'm just still waiting uh, on uh, this, uh,
said, we'll, you know, we'll let you know what's going on with the primary care task force with our responses to some of these challenges. But if there are any particular areas you all want us to focus on, um, that's help. That's always helpful for us. Go ahead, Mark. Mark, go ahead. Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything. Oh, oh okay. Um, is this, um, hmm. are we losing providers? Is that the problem? And is that due to burnout or um, the COVID? Uh, simply because 
when fall comes uh, comes in, uh, most homeless most homeless people tend to forget everything else except for actual food and shelter in general, and tend not to not to go beyond that. Um, um, give, given um, given whatever the weather might be. And so we might see we might see some fluctuation in those numbers uh, during the winter. That doesn't mean, of course, uh, we don't have uh, that, that that this isn't a problem area uh, for for delivering service. But it just means that we might see a kind of a false um, uh, pause uh, in demand um, simply because uh, people's priorities change uh, uh, during the winter months. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point, and I think one of the things we're hoping to be able to do through this process is try to identify trends like that in subpopulations so that we can do a better job of making sure we have adequate capacity or, you know, when, when trends bounce back. So that's not one that I've particularly noticed, but I'm not sure that, um, you know, we have the capability to look at the data and that granularity, um, and I think that would be helpful to be able to do that so that we know, you know, like we're going to expect that you know, things will, things will ebb and flow in certain ways. So that's something we can, we can also look into, Mark. Yeah. And also aren't, um, I think a big area of concern is of course the overdosing and the fentanyl crisis, you know, and that, that does show up in homeless quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why we're, you know, really excited that the Bridge Clinic, you know, was approved to add to our federal scope. Um, we're excited to try to, you know, get that, um, uh, cre you know, that Federally Qualified Health Center created so that we can bill for it as as a Federally Qualified Health Center here, you know, and and get the benefits of um, of the higher rates for that service because I think that's a really really critical need, and I think that's an area of our service that um, that stands out from the wellness centers in that, um, you know, it's, it's a drop-in basis. So right. whether the demand gets higher or lower, the clinic figures out a way to see the people who come in. Now, it's with a very narrow scope. scope. It's really around primarily preventing overdose and providing right. systems that do that um, rather than treating heart disease and, you know, treating okay. infectious disease and those kinds of things. But I do think that's kind of um, um, an important signal for where we need to focus, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, uh, that may be another pandemic that we should include in our mm -hmm. pandemic updates. Um, the, the numbers are skyrocketing. They're particularly oh, yeah. bad in our community for African, you know, older African Americans, especially older African American men. Um, it's really devastating yeah. to see what overdoses are doing um, across the nation and in our community. And I think a lot of them, a lot of heroin users have gone to fentanyl. And by doing that, you know, they they don't always know what they have as far as potency. And that also causes more over um, overdoses, you know? Yeah. So it's crazy. <laughs> I, think it's a pretty, I think it's pretty much an epidemic that's changed from the used to that uh, fentanyl, which is um, quite deadly, and people are not getting in treatment or know how to treat themselves. In a, in a manner that would be outpatient would be um, helpful for them. So they have to dial back in order for them to get, to get a foothold, so they need some type of treatment plan. And that treatment plan and intervention, we can kind of attack that and maybe bring the numbers down people are willing to go into uh, treatment or outpatient treatment, but we have to have a plan. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And the, the thrust of our effort right now is in the Bridge Clinic, um, which is really low barrier drop-in access to medically-assisted treatment, um, along with support from substance use navigators who are, you know, peers, um, and I think that's, that's working, but um, it needs complementary um, efforts, you know, in the sort of on the counseling side, in the hospitals and ERs across our system. Um, I think the Bridge Clinic alone 
is. I'm just wondering whether or not um, um, if, if we're able to get the, the, the bridge part of the program um, uh, on, on equal footing in terms of trying to treat uh, fentanyl overdoses or fentanyl patients. Uh, I'm wondering, um, um, is it possible for us to record um, um, deaths in those areas so that we have a statistical picture uh, about um, the number of patients that um, we're, able to, <clears throat> we're able to save or rehabilitate uh, versus uh, the overall death rate of the populace we're serving? Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for your, your question. I think we're getting a little off topic from the presentation that Damon has for us tonight regarding um, access. And we can get more back with, uh, we'll have the Bridge Clinic come back and really talk about treatment, but um, I'm just worried that we're a little bit off the intent of our agenda item. Okay. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Heather. Yeah, so we'll, we'll um, we, we intend, fully intend to have Bridge Clinic come back, as Heather said, and so we can talk about that and, and that item. And again, if you guys have any additional feedback, I think um, looking at behavioral health, looking at subpopulation trends in terms of the demand pattern and mismatch, we'll make sure we address those topics as we come back and talk about what we're doing, you know, just to make sure we have enough providers to care for the, the patients that we have. Um, and I appreciate you guys just um, taking the time to, to hear about that. Thank you, Damon. Um, Heather, should we go back to uh, B now? Well, we do want to acknowledge that during the conversation that um, Derek uh, joined the meeting, and so we yes. now we do have quorum. So I think that I've said that on the recording, and that's probably adequate. Um, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you want to go back to item B, that would be great. Okay. Um, can I get a motion to approve the minutes from our meeting on September? 13th of the co-applicant board and also to adopt the resolution authorizing remote teleconferencing meetings pursuant to AB 361. I so move. Second. Uh, I'll second. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Oh, Brenda, can we have you do roll call for the vote? Yes. I will call your name for the vote and please state yes or no. Loretta Mellon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr. Yes. Mark Smith? Yes. Derek Turner? Yes. Ali Yesen? Ali Yesen? He probably have us mute. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. Um, we can we can double check with him later. Uh, he might not be able to take his phone off me right now. So, um, you ready to go, Loretta, on to the next topic? Yes, yes. Okay. Um, item D, we have Marisa Brown, the um, interim practice manager from Eastmont um, Expansion. Give us a report and discussion. Oh, here's Marisa. Yeah, this is actually a follow-up from last time. So okay. she provided, or we provided the presentation last month, and so she's come back to mainly answer any questions. Thank you, Heather. And nice to finally meet you all. <laughs> so I think the primary question that we had left over from last um, session was uh, regarding eyeglasses and optometry. Loretta, you had posed the question um, regarding providing um, eyeglasses to patients. Did you want to um, verbally ask the question to Marissa again, or do you, are you, are you satisfied with my summary? No, you, you, you said it perfectly. I, <laughs> I don't know if Marissa um, remembers the question, but my question was that um, as we serve people in uh, getting their eye exams, the problem is um, finding places that will actually fulfill their prescriptions. And um, it, are we planning on doing something about this 
or are we going to start offering that service within our um, organization? You know, that's a good question. That's something that we probably can take back to our, our optometry department to see if that's something that we can offer. I know that we do assist the pediatric uh, patients with their eyeglasses, um, and it's not necessarily um, a program for them, but it's basically they just have like a group of glasses there where they can try on the glasses mm -hmm. and do that kind of um, exam, but they do not assist at all with um, with uh, getting the actual eyeglasses. But I'll take that back and see if there's something that we can do for the, for the uh, patients. Um, I know for a fact, because I, I did research on this, there are two um, doctors in the Bay Area that will take Medi-Cal for eyeglasses. That's it. All the other providers that are on the list for Medi-Cal do not. So there's two. Oh, wow. And they're both Can you well share that list with me? Sure, absolutely. Okay. And then we'll see what we can do. I can work with the uh, School of Optometry as well. Okay. All right, any other questions from Lisa? Well, thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us this evening. Yes, anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, we have John Minot back this evening to continue speaking about the alternative payment methodology. Letter of review, John. Thank you. Um, so, hello again, everyone. John Minot, uh, Director of Program Planning and Finance at AHS. Um, oh, thank you. I was just about to ask if you could bring that up. So, as a recap, uh, last month I came to you uh, showing uh, the details of the letter of of. Uh, walking through some of the alternative payment methodology, which is essentially a, an opportunity to potentially be paid by the patient rather than by the visit in uh, the FQ setting, meaning that we could um, be, be paid for meeting the patient's needs with a lot more flexi flexibility as to how, where, and uh, modalities. Um, this, uh, Again, I am uh, heading a committee to make a recommendation on whether to apply. Um, we have not made the recommendation yet. However, to keep the option open, uh, we have to submit a letter of a non-binding letter of interest uh, by November 1st. Uh, it, it did get pushed back, I believe, uh, from what we thought last time. We thought it would be middle of October. Now it's been pushed back to December, uh, November 1st. Um, the main uh, content of the letter of interest, besides saying, yes, we do, we are interested in maybe doing this, uh, is writing the narrative. And it is limited in how much it can cover, um, since it's only 125 words maximum. And it is uh, uh, because we have not actually decided to do this, we have not you know, decided how to implement it, um, even if we had a lot of space we couldn't be very definite in precisely how we would respond to APM. But we can talk about uh, the things that we envision doing, the things that it makes sense to do, and of course, uh, some of our achievements showing why we are a good prospect to do this, because the state isn't necessarily going to let everyone who applies uh, participate. Mm. They want the first round of participants to be ones that have capability and interests and, and uh, capacity. So, uh, you see on your screen here um, uh, the draft narrative uh, for your review, um, and this, this would go in the application uh, to DHCS along with a quick letter um, from uh, Dr. Jackson and some other miscellaneous things like listing the FQHCs. Um, so we talk about how it would grant us needed flexibility to re-examine workflows and resource use, improve team-based care model, meet patient needs. Uh, talks about how currently we are we receive primary care reimbursement, um, 
in a partially uh, capitated, partially meaning per, partially per patient system, um, although that is just with the alliance and just really for part of our payment, so it's not as comprehensive as this APM would be. And it talks about the kinds of uh, things that AHS uh, could have, basically what we could imagine being part of a fuller implementation of, uh, of you know, fulfilling the promise of APM, not just changing the payment system, including uh, having full care team models that incorporate not just providers, but clinical support and administrative support, potentially allowing providers to uh, spend more time uh, on things that are not face-to-face -face visits or that are not telehealth visits. Obviously, uh, well, uh, not obviously, but uh, integrating alternative care touches because those are, uh, you know, ways to meet patients' needs that wouldn't currently be billable, and broadly, uh, volume to value. So this is all, you know, not not really uh, tying us down because we can, we it would be improper to tie it to. <laughs> we haven't actually uh, made any of these decisions yet. But we're hoping that this gestures in the direction of uh, what the APM might look like for us if we decide it's a good idea to jump in. Um, and yeah, um, hoping to get your feedback. Uh, Mark? Uh, yeah, my question is, and I might have asked it the, the last time uh, you made this presentation uh, regarding this issue. I was just wondering. Um, um, in signing this letter, uh, that we would want to, uh, that we're definitely interested in possibly doing it, uh, that certainly doesn't commit us to doing it. Um, uh, and if that's the case, um, what, uh, what then would the process uh, going forward look like once, uh, uh, once we uh, sent them a letter saying uh, that we were uh, in interested in possibly uh, implementing this? Um, no, good question. Um, so there would be a full application uh, for which the revised due date is now January 31st of next year. Uh, that would, uh, the main new thing that that would include, well, no, it would include some more narratives, some, some more details of what we intend to do, um, but it would also include an, a readiness assessment from Alameda Alliance uh, yeah. because they, they would be a key data partner and the state would want to know that they could get our data through the alliance. Um, sending, submitting that application, uh, you, we would need to submit by January 31st if we wanted to begin participating in the program January 2024. <laughs> if we decided we just, we wanted to push it back a year and not participate until January 2025, then you would push the application back 12 months as well. Um, but, but under the scenario that it's, you know, the, the earliest of the process of the cycles, the earliest of the cycles, uh, I think a few months, I, I don't remember offhand if the state has committed, but I think a few months after that January application, they would identify whether uh, we were among those selected for the first year participants. And the, the main work over that year uh, with the state would be them identifying what is the rate that's equivalent to our FQHC rates, but that is works out to roughly the same on a per capita, per member basis. And that is a complicated calculation. I, I wish it could be simpler, but that's not going to, that's not the way they do things. And they were, they are farming it out as they usually do uh, to an actuarial consultant that makes these kinds of rates for them. And uh, we now know since an updated schedule that we would get, we would be disclosed draft rates in May, 2023. <laughs> if we wanted to pull out based on those draft rates, we would have to do so by August. Um, the, the rates would then be finalized November and then uh, day one is January, 2024. And again, you could push all of that back 12 months for, for any clinic or clinic system that wants to be in wave two. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, it does. And one follow-up. Um, other than the 
time to determine um, uh, uh, who should who should uh, participate in this program? I would say those are different things. Um, the actuarial component is for the people they decide should participate. What are they going to pay? Oh, uh, but the decision of who to par who should participate, I don't think they've released their full list of criteria. But I think they're big from from the application materials they've circulated. I would say their biggest um, their biggest criterion is probably readiness, and the biggest part of readiness is probably data. But they will also be looking at you know are are the is the clinic prepared to you know make make changes that uh, match the goal of improving care, improving processes in the way this decisions. So there could there there could be a lot of criteria. Thank you. And John, how would Alameda Alliance be affected by this? Um, <laughs> they would not be significantly affected monetarily, mm -hmm. um, but uh, although there there are some cases in which conceivably they could, um, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, but they are going to be that right now we only get part of our payment from them. Right. We get a capitated rate, but then we build a state for the remainder. Mm -hmm. Under this, we would get the whole from them. Oh, okay. On a per member basis. Additionally, right now the state, so mm -hmm. so it would be critical. Also, remember we talked about the alternative care touches. Mm -hmm. They would uh, they could decrease the the total visits could decrease by no more than 30%, including alternative care touches. The plan will also be the one counting those touches. And if we're not currently transmitting those, we would probably have to start, or at least a good chunk of them. Um, finally, the plan may also be the conduit for the quality data in terms uh, of what, are we meeting the quality metrics. And I should set add- by the, yeah. Set by the state, the quality metrics set by the uh, state? Based on based on benchmarks they provide in advance, yes. Oh, okay. uh, you know, looking at the fifth, the thirty third, or the fiftieth percentile of Medicaid patients uh, across some group. Um, I should say the other key the other key role of the plans is that uh, the state is looking for agreement from the plan that a clinic is ready. Mm -hmm. um, the plan does not have to provide that. Um, it is their assessment whether they think that a plan has data capacity, and they have several questions they are going to be asking the plans. So obviously, I can't imagine they would select a clinic for wave one that the plan has deemed not ready. Mm -hmm. And of course, us having Epic makes all that information easily or easy or. Uh, at our fingertips, so to speak. <laughs> supposed well, to there be are certainly it. pathways for it. Yeah. Is the validity, I would say, because yeah. some of these we may not have been doing. Yes. Um, I have a question. Um, just what you just said, um, some of them we may not have been doing. Um, if, we, if we are interested in doing this, um, the things that maybe we should have been doing in regards to this uh, this measure uh, that we've not been doing? Will we have time to do that, or is that something that we do uh, on the fly as we're, as we're or looking ahead to participating? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't mean, let's see, there are, there are only a few quality metrics that we are not set up for in their list, but I was referring more to the alternative care touches. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. But but uh, but to both of those, um, I think that is absolutely a part of our evaluation as to whether we would uh, whether we would seek to participate in Wave One. Yeah, I would say even with regard to the quality measures, it would be even though it's the same measures, it would be a big difference to submit those through Alameda Alliance versus to submit them directly to the state, and that's that's a pretty important nuance. Correct. This is something that. There has been some dispute over between um, uh, between uh, providers and the state about whether it makes sense to only allow the plan to submit the quality data 
or if there could be a backstop of the clinic saying this is how we scored and sort of and certifying that. Um, yeah. and, and who, in your estimation, uh, would actually um, who who would actually uh, in the end do you think would um, be the ones to uh, to be able to submit that? To submit the quality data? Yeah, quality data, yes. Well, right now the state is saying it would have to be the plans. Whatever plans are contracted, and in 2024 it will be just Alameda Alliance. Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, of course, we already submit this quality data to plans. Um, because a lot of because a lot of these quality metrics are ones that the uh, even outside of QIP they may not all in QIP we submit directly but the plan submits a lot of data um, for its own quality metrics and for uh, for our non QIP pay for performance programs so th so this isn't uh, this isn't at all brand new having the plan uh, take these metrics but it, but it requires examination. Thank you, Mark. Any other questions? Well, only one, I guess. Uh, when, uh, you, you told us about the deadlines uh, in submitting, whether or not we want to do this, um, submitting an application to do this. Um, do, do you see? Uh, do you see us doing it, or are we are we still hashing it out? It's a, it's a work. We are still hashing it out. Sounds like discussion has yeah. been on this topic. Great, great, great. Um, okay, so we're uh, going to move on to item F, which is the strategic plan report. Can we just had our wires crossed. This one we're planning to do in November, um, um, as, as we talked to you about at the our um, agenda yeah. planning meeting, yeah. uh, Loretta. So hopefully you're okay with moving this to uh, yeah. the November agenda. Absolutely, that's fine. Here, I, is there another page here, uh, Brenda? Okay. So, um, item G uh, is the program report to Heather. Thank you so much. We have our monthly program report. Um, so, this is our patient satisfaction report that is being reported this month. Um, you can see the colors are representing our various wellness centers. The black line, which is the darkest line on the screen, um, represents all of the wellness centers put together, combined. Remember, there's different, um, a number of patients at each of these centers, so this combines all of them. Um, you can see a generally slowly upward, uh, upward trend there. The dotted line across the top is our goal, and this is over um, a rolling 12 months. And generally, um, what's happening also is there is a gap between when your visit is and when we're getting the data back related to the patient satisfaction of that visit. So that's why you see that it's going through March of 2022. So it's usually about a quarter behind. You want to scroll to the next page? Here you can have the, you see the details for each of the centers as well. Um, kind of in a, where we are overall versus the rolling 12s. So you can see that um, the goal is 84.2. You see Marina Wellness Center is approaching that goal, is very close to it, and the other wellness centers not too far behind. Yeah. East Mount Long really took a, a jump, didn't it? The primary, uh, the, 
Well, um, I would need to compare to the, you know, if you scroll back to the, the upper one, can you scroll back to our, our screen before? Yeah. You can see how they're slowly moving up, right? But they're pretty consistently higher than the other sites, actually. Is that because of the population they serve? Or I know they have the refugee clinic and they have, well, the homeless people are supposed to have follow-ups there. I don't know. It's not clear. I try to look at the data and, and answer the question. It's not clear to me. I don't know if it is to you, Heather, but Eastmont has been perennially at the top of the patient satisfaction numbers. Interesting. Heather, do you have a hypothesis? I don't, and, we've, and Maritza isn't with us anymore today. She would have been the person who I think would have been yes. equipped to answer the question. So I can um, follow up with her and, and ask her for her input on that, and we can bring it back to you next month. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, Brenda, do you want to quick ask? Thank you so much. All right. And then we also stratify the same data by ethnicity. So you'll see, and I'm sorry, I know it's a very, very small screen. You've got, the, you've got each of the wellness centers and then broken up by ethnicity. The green is Asian. The black is black. Or African American, the the orangish color is Native American. Um, the yellow is other, and the gray is white. So, so looking at this chart for Eastmont, it's saying that they have the highest percentage of of um, Asian patients. Is that what that means? Uh, no. No, so if you're looking at Eastmont specifically, um, so that's the second set of blocks. The green, right? Well, no, the green in this case now is referring to ethnicity. So if you if you look at the bottom of each of the blocks, uh -huh. you'll see where it's, it first says system, and then yeah. the next block, thank you so much, Brenda's using the little hand. <laughs> move over to Eastmont to the next one. There it is. This is Eastmont. And this okay. is how Eastmont's um, scores are divided amongst people of various ethnicities. Yeah. And in this case, um, I'm sorry, based on race. Right. The social constructs that we have. All right. Um, so the green in this case is referring to our Asian population and how they're responding to the quality of care at Eastmont based on the question, would they recommend the practice? Mm -hmm. And then the next one, the black um, column, that's our black or African-American patients and how they're responding that they recommend the practice at Eastmont. Those methods of looking at patient satisfaction. 
so much. All right, so going to the next page, we're looking at our utilization. So this is our overall utilization for the last 12 months. And it's broken up by primary care at Highland, specialty care at Highland, urgent care at Highland, our Highland dental and oral surgery, our substitute disorder clinic, and then you'll see our freestanding clinics, Eastmont, our mobile health van, Hayward, and Newark. And these are the patients that are showing up on our homeless registry. When we go to the next slide, we're going to see that over time. So this is the total amount for the year. And if you want to go to the next slide, here we see it over time based on the same categories that we saw in the slide before. So that top one is our Highland Specialty line. And remember, Highland Specialty is serving patients from all of the clinics as well as patients outside of Alameda Health System who don't see Alameda Health System uh, for primary care, so that's why that is higher. Yeah. That mm -hmm. orange line in the middle, that, that's an orange line, that's Eastmont. And then the yellow line, I always like to point these out because they're similar in color. The yellow line at the bottom is um, Highland Urgent Care, and again, the reason we see that dip is because we were counting all of the vaccinations and that vaccination rate, because the vaccines are included in their visit count, um, that vaccination rate has declined significantly. So you're seeing those vaccination rates declining. And we also typically like to point out our mobile van, because you guys have a, okay. invest, a vested interest in our mobile then it has a teal line that you see bounces up and down. And one of the reasons that bounces up and down is sometimes because of, um, you know, as limited providers, sometimes the providers are on vacation. And so when one of them is on vacation, we see it shifting significantly because it's a very small clinic. And it means we are canceling sometimes clinic if a provider is on vacation. So we have fewer clinic sessions available. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to the next one. So the next slide is around, again, looking at primary care as compared to specialty care, but this is now a cross-site. So all of primary care, this includes Newark, Eastmont, Hayward, um, and Highlands mixed together, as well as the specialties across the system. So this will include specialties that are at Eastmont and Hayward and Newark as well, so that we're seeing it, the type of service patients are coming in for. And then we're going to go to the next slide, and now we're going to see it over time again. So you can see the slow upward. And we had a, we had a big jump there for specialty, and I think this also had to do with um, our some things that delayed access due to COVID and delayed response due to COVID, and then things start opening back up, and so they're up higher. And uh, primary care has been a little bit more consistently available over time. You'll see the, um, our substance uh, use disorder clinic, pain and buprenorphine clinics, um, again, with a slow upward trend and a, a concerted effort. Same thing with behavioral health. And behavior, yes, exactly. Yes. Exactly. They're tied in closely, so. Correct. And, um, you know, we, we jumped right up into the data, and I, I'm realizing um, that at the very top of the program report, I may have forgotten to mention that the Bridge Clinic was approved by HRSA, um, and I'm pretty sure this is the month that I'm announcing that. It seems like old news to me because it's like happened last week. But the, uh, <laughs> HRSA did approve our Bridge Clinic edition, so that's pretty exciting. They approved that very quickly. Um, that was submitted uh, about a month ago, and was, a month and a half ago, and it was approved, I think, within 30 days after. So it was a very fast timeline. That's great. Um, do you want to go to the next slide? So the other metrics that we're reviewing today are our quality metrics, and we review these um, roughly quarterly as well. And so in this case, we're looking across ambulatory care just at those that are experiencing homelessness and those that are not experiencing homelessness for the quality metrics. 
These are impaneled in, in patients that are received in the last 24 months. So we're looking at the quality metrics for patients that were actively involved in care. What happened in May? What makes that go down so much? That is a good question. I do not have the answer to that. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, the numbers are fairly small, so I think it, it, it that you, you can see different trends in this. Heather, do you want me to narrate these? Sure. Um, so these are just selected measures. We have, uh, I, I think you all might remember reviewing like 50 different measures at some point in the pandemic, and most of them tracked about the same among people experiencing homelessness as among people not experiencing homelessness in our, in our system. Um, again, just kind of substantiating the idea that for a lot of folks who are experiencing homelessness, HRSA homelessness, they're housing insecure for a short period of time. For some part of the year, they may be in the homeless category, and then for the other part of the year, they may be in the non-homeless category because their housing crisis resolves. And that's really the bulk of the people that we're seeing in the wellness center who we're calling homeless. Uh, many of them are couch surfing for a short period of time, for example. Um, so in this case, we see a, you know, a small gap that's been narrowing. And I, I think um, if you go forward, Brenda, um, uh, for the depression response at six months, we see a larger gap um, in terms of the people experiencing homelessness compared to non-homeless patients between the, the proportion of people who respond to treatment within six months for their depression. Um, but still the gap is about um, I think 12% or so at the end of this period of time. Um, and then in breast cancer screening, uh, we see a gap of somewhere around the same thing, 12 or 15% between people experiencing homelessness and people not experiencing homelessness. I think there's a similar trend on the next slide for colon cancer screening. Um, yeah, where we again see about a 15% difference. And then um, for diabetes control, um, this one lower is better, so the lower number is better. So we're starting to see the reemergence really of more consistent differences, um, really, you know, in about the 10 to 15 percent range across many of these measures. We're seeing these in other measures too that aren't the selected ones that we're reporting to you guys. You can go to the next um, slide. Um, in controlling high blood pressure, this one has been less consistent, and um, really, the, the you can see by the the um, the scale on the left side, that these are just tiny percentage differences. This is only going from 58 to 59%. So in the area of controlling high blood pressure, um, we're really much tighter. And so it, it's not really clear from the data yet that there may be different groups of measures for which housing insecurity and homeless, homelessness matters more. Um, and it seems like, for example, controlling high blood pressure may be one where housing insecurity is not having that much of an impact on the measure. Whereas for some of our screening measures like breast cancer screening or colon cancer screening um, that, um, you know, that involve, you know, just a one time communicating with someone, getting something scheduled, showing up versus a pattern of a relationship between a provider and a patient leading to blood pressure control. You know, that's a possibility for, for why there's a difference between some of these measures and other measures. So I think what we're seeing is the emergence of a different pattern than the one that we had during the pandemic, which was where there wasn't really a big difference between the population that people were concerned with in the homeless health center and the rest of the ambulatory population. Now some differences are emerging, but it's really hard to make sense of what those patterns are. And I think as we continue to present this quality data on a quarterly basis, um, we'll hopefully get a better and better sense of what those patterns are. The other note to make that we always make every time we present these data is we have such small numbers of children experiencing homelessness in our wellness centers, or at least that are reported as experiencing homelessness, that we really can't say much about the quality data. That's in contrast to the schools and the homeless count that report large numbers of children experiencing homelessness. Yeah. So it's really not clear whether people are just not reporting it to us, whether we're really not seeing children experiencing homelessness in our system. It's not clear sort of what's driving that difference because we know that there are large numbers of children experiencing homelessness in our county and in our community. 
we would expect that they'd be served in a safety net institution like ours. We're just not really sure why they're not showing up in the data. Is there a question? Yeah, yes, I just had one. Um, is it that we're not we're not simply asking the question? No, we ask the question of every caregiver or patient, um, you know, at registration. Um, what's your living situation? And um, there is some evidence from work that I've done in, uh, in other settings that parents are less likely to disclose information about, um, you know, potentially stigmatizing social status. Um, and that may be that may be a driver in this case, you know, that, that when you're bringing your child to pediatric clinic, if you're having trouble with housing, but you're in the context of a public safety net setting, you may not want to tell the registration clerk, you know, yeah, I'm actually having trouble with my living situation. You don't yeah. want to risk someone thinking you're not able to take care of your child. Right. So people, people don't tend to disclose as much. Um, we've definitely seen that pattern in, you know, social determinants of health and health-related social needs screening around the country. So that may be something that's going on. Again, I, I think this question is pretty hard to answer, and we don't really know the answer in our setting, but that's a possibility. People are at least being asked, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the answers that we're getting are, are always reliable in every situation. Okay. That makes sense. Definitely. All right, and then in our leadership and advocacy um, section, if you want to go on to the next page, Brenda, um, usually it's the last little section that has the update, but uh, there is nothing significant that has changed in this section from last month. It's just a reminder of all of the uh, additional roles where we still have on our plate. Um, okay. Damon and I are in Brenda um, for ambulatory. Okay, I don't believe we have any public comment this evening. Um, is there any board member comments? Okay, if there's nothing else, um, the time is 7.04 and we're adjourned.